16 is so rich and applicable to every congregation of Jesus Christ like the rest of Scripture is. I trust that he will speak to you through it this afternoon. Let's read Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. After the sermon, we will sing, without further announcement, our Amen song of hymn six, both stanzas. May God bless the preaching of his word. Beloved in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and already we must pause. We must unpack these words that begin each and every sermon. Sometimes they're a little different. You may hear beloved in Christ, other times beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, but nearly always, no matter who is on the pulpit, the word beloved is in there, almost always. And why? Well, is it just tradition? I certainly hope not. Tradition, for its own sake, is not only pointless, but dangerous. And something is said again and again and again, there must be a good reason for it. So why beloved? Well, beloved because it is biblical, and beloved because it is our primary identity. 
Though this word beloved is used more in Song of Songs than in any other book of the Bible, and there it refers to the romantic love between a man and a woman, it's also used for the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We see this at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son. And again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the exact same words, this is my beloved Son. But what should shock us What should impact us so deeply to our core is that the language used by a couple on the verge of their wedding day, the language used for the eternal bond of love between the divine persons of the Trinity is also applied to us. Indulge me briefly as I go through a few passages. Ephesians 5 verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We are beloved children of God and must show the family resemblance. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're chosen by God, chosen to be holy, chosen in that eternal divine love. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The proof, the proof that we are beloved, it comes in that God has chosen us to be saved, giving up his other beloved, Jesus Christ, for us. And finally, Jude 1, to those who are called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We are those who are beloved by the Father, kept safe, kept secure, kept in Him forever. And now any of these passages could have worked. Actually, in talking with Tim a few weeks ago, I was getting him to look at this sermon, and he said, I don't think you need all of those passages. So I probably don't need them, but it's good to remember this isn't a one-off thing. This is something that is in Scripture again and again. We are beloved. This is something that we have to reflect on, something that we can't take lightly. We are the beloved of God. This is the most important part of our identity, the beloved of God. We should, ne- we should never, never, ever get over the life-altering fact that Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us, and and our lives must revolve around this. Everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do, it has to be a response to this most important fact about who we are, loved by God. Every Every moment of our lives must be an act of worship and thankfulness and praise. So be prepared in your life to answer those who ask you, why do you praise the Lord? We can answer them in this way. Because he loves us, because he saves me, and because he saved us. Why do we praise the Lord? Because he loves us. Now, Psalm 118, it's by all accounts a a very interesting psalm. Martin Luther writes that this was his favorite psalm, a psalm that gave him immense strength in difficult times. He was probably looking specifically at, at verse 8, it is, better, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And then again, all nations surrounded me. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. 
And Luther felt that he was taking on the corruption of the church single-handedly. God was still there. And one man plus God is the majority. Luther realized that it ultimately didn't matter if he was fighting against popes and emperors and armies. With God, he was the majority. With God, he had direct access to an unlimited reservoir of strength to keep fighting for what was right. But to get a clearer picture of this psalm, we we must go back many years before Martin Luther and Wittenberg. We must return at least to the days of Ezra in the land of Israel, if not further back. Let me explain. There's debate among scholars as to the authorship of this psalm. As you can see in your Bibles, there's no superscription for this psalm. And the superscription, if you don't know, that's, that's the historical information about the psalm that's underneath the number and, and before the first verse. For example, with Psalm 51, there's a superscription there, and it shows us the author, David. We know the reason for the psalm, his sin with Bathsheba. We even know the timing. It was after the prophet Nathan confronted him. But with Psalm 118, we don't know. Various authors and situations have been given, but the two main options are King David, perhaps at his coronation, perhaps when the ark was brought into Jerusalem, perhaps at some other major event in his life. Or the second option is someone among the exiles who returned to the land with Ezra and Nehemiah. And we heard something very similar to the first four verses of Psalm 118 in our reading from Ezra. Let's read them side by side here. First from Ezra. Ezra 3, verse 11, these are the verses we read. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And then Psalm 118, I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And so not only are the words the same, but even the idea of the responsive singing is shown in the psalm. In Ezra, they sang responsively. And in the psalm, we have let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say. Whether the psalm was written by the exiles or by David or by someone else entirely, it was definitely sung by the exiles here, in Ezra 3. There's one more reason that Psalm 118 is a post-exilic psalm, but we'll get there later. First, let's get into the text of our psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this is language that has been completely adopted by the church. Now, on the one hand, this is wonderful. To take the inspired words of Scripture and say them and read them and sing them so often that they've become our words. It's great, but it's also become a bit of a cliché. These words have come to mean for some of us we must be thankful no matter what because God is good, because God is loving. And you hear me say this and you think, what's, what's the problem with that? Because these words are true. It it is true, and we should come back to this, but we shouldn't be thinking of it in a simplistic way, as though any time something bad happens, as though any time that we're scared, then the Christian thing to do is to lie to ourselves, to discount our fears and our sadness, and say, no, as a Christian, I must be thankful. 
I'm not feeling sad. I'm not feeling scared. What I'm feeling, it must be thanksgiving. And we force ourselves to smile, a painfully fake smile, and say, too blessed to be stressed. And smile even when our heart is aching, even when it's breaking. We feel that we have to hide every trace of sadness, and maybe tomorrow, or maybe next week, or next year, that smile that we have plastered across our face will finally be true. How ridiculous. Stop doing this. This isn't Christian. This isn't what God expects of you to do. This is a warping and a twisting of our beautiful comfort and hope. Because our comfort and hope, our Christian identity, our safety and security is there because in our trials, there is still hope. It's not that we don't have trials, that we pretend that life is constant sunshine. Because look at the rest of the psalm here. The one who calls on peoples everywhere to praise the Lord, giving thanks, is the one who is in distress, in verse 5. The one who felt that he was surrounded by all the nations, in verse 10. The one who is falling, in verse 13. The one who, seemingly from the grave, proclaims boldly, I shall not die, but I shall live, in verse 17. The psalmist, he doesn't pretend that his life has been one nonstop joyride. So why would we? We don't have to be ashamed of the difficult times in our lives. We don't have to be ashamed of our emotional reactions to them. This is a broken world, and we're right to have times of mourning. We're right to use God's gift of lament when we don't see God, when we don't understand what he's doing. Hoping and praying, of course, that that lament turns into praise and thanksgiving when the sun does break through the clouds and shines on us again when we see God working clearly and powerfully in our lives once more, when the darkness and death of of Good Friday turns into light and life of Easter Sunday. But we don't only love and praise and thank the God who saves us. We have a God who loves us. This is more foundational, this is more basic to our belief that God loves us. And, And we've grown tired of hearing it. We've grown tired of hearing it because we hear it so often. We grow tired of hearing it because we grow tired of hearing it, and that's exactly why we have to hear it again. This is what the psalmist proclaims in these opening verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. These are the words of the psalmist, essentially, to the psalmist. Saying to his heart, preaching to his own soul, remember God, thank him, he's good, he loves me forever. But it's not enough. As an individual, the psalmist, he can't express enough thankfulness just by himself. And so what he does is he calls everyone to join him. You can think of the the New Testament parable that Jesus tells of, of the lost coin, right? The woman who loses the coin and she finds it, and she calls all of her neighbors around her to rejoice with her. What was lost is now found. And so this is what the psalmist does. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. God's people, God's chosen nation, rejoice with me. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist here, he's literally preaching to the choir, the priests and the Levites, the temple singers, you who praise God for a living, rejoice with me. His steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. 
All the God-fearers, all those who might not be ethnically Jewish, those who have joined themselves to God's people, rejoice with me. His steadfast love endures forever. And the repetition here, it's, it's necessary because our hearts are slow. The repetition is necessary because our hearts are dull. The psalmist is essentially saying, let me say it once more for all the people in the back, his love endures forever. Repeat it until you believe it. Not to convince yourself of something that isn't true, but rather to break through your doubts, to break through the fog of lies that the devil has built up around you. Lies like, someone like God couldn't possibly love someone like you. Repeat, his steadfast love endures forever until the meaning sinks in. It's like that well-known, emotionally powerful scene in the classic movie Goodwill Hunting. Maybe you've seen it. The main character, Will, he's speaking to a therapist about the physical abuse that he received at the hand of his father. And very simply, very powerfully, the therapist says four words. He says, it's not your fault. And Will responds nonchalantly, I know. And again, it's not your fault. Will smiles, I know. And again, it's not your fault. I know. Again and again, ten times, it's not your fault. You see, Will knew this intellectually, just like we know intellectually that God loves us. He knew intellectually that it wasn't his fault. But because as a child, you implicitly love and trust and respect your parents, whether they're worthy of that love and trust or not, when something like abuse happens, you think it must be your fault. It can't be dad's fault. He's my hero. And this is so deeply ingrained. And, it's the, and the same is true with the lies that the, that the devil whispers to us. So deeply ingrained, almost from birth, that little voice inside that accuses you that you don't belong, that God couldn't love you. It's so ingrained in us. And the mind can be convinced, but, but the heart sometimes lags behind. It's not your fault. God loves you. I know. But do you? The scene ends with Will in tears, sobbing in relief from this heavy burden. And that's what we should feel when we hear these words. His steadfast love endures forever. Because what this means is that God loves you. He really loves you, and there's nothing that you can do to change that. His steadfast love endures forever. He loved Adam and Eve when they tried to be gods themselves instead of him. He loved David when he committed adultery and murder. He loved Peter when he denied him and the other disciples when they fled away from him. He loved the Apostle Paul when he persecuted the church. His steadfast love endures forever. When you're having a bad day, when you haven't cracked open your Bible in weeks, when you've been caught in a particular sin for months, God loves you. His steadfast love endures forever. It's more than that. Long before you were born, when we only existed in God's imagination, and long after we're dead, long after our civilization crumbles to dust, when stars themselves burn out, our God loves you. His steadfast love endures forever. Do you understand? 
Not only with your mind, but with your heart. Can you accept that God loves you? The thought should make us weep in relief, in comfort, in joy, and in praise. But love, love is merely a feeling that's not enough. We can be very thankful that God's love isn't merely a feeling. Love, we could say, is the foundation of our faith, but our faith is grounded in history. Our faith is grounded in a God who acted out of eternal love in infinite power. And so we can say, I praise the Lord because he saves me. That's our second point. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The psalmist, having having given his thesis, God loves me forever. After calling everyone around him to praise the Lord with him, he then gives further reasoning for praising God. God is loving. He will love you until after the stars burn out, but he doesn't just stay up in heaven loving you from afar. Our God, beloved, our God is not only loving, but he's powerful. As we'll sing later in the service, all that his love and grace endeavor shall him his power not deny. Every good and wonderful and loving thing, every truly awesome, awe-inspiring thing that God puts his mind to will happen. A God who would sit up in heaven helplessly loving us from afar would not be worthy of worship. He would not be God. But rather, our God is a God who acts. You see that he acted for the psalmist and saved him. And now we come to a bit of a challenge here, as we don't know exactly who the psalmist was and what he was saved from. If the psalmist was David, as some claim, then then the psalm looks back to David's life of war and violence. Maybe David, when he was faced with Goliath, David was opposed to the giant himself. David fought the giant by himself, rather. He was opposed by the giant. He was opposed by the Philistine army. He was opposed by his family with very little support and trust from his king and country. David was a man who was fighting alone. But he was fighting with God on his side, and he was victorious. Maybe this was David when he was on the run from from Saul. He couldn't stay in Israel because of the wicked, insane king. He couldn't safely live in foreign countries because they knew him to be a great warrior who killed many of their own. And so he resorted to hiding in caves and pretending to be a madman. But God saved him and he was victorious. Maybe it's David. Or, if as other scholars say, this is a post-exilic psalm, then one of the exiles who was taken into Babylon for a life little better than that of a slave, an exile who worshipped God when all the rest had given up, had seen God's wonderful, powerful deliverance when the people were released back into the land to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild God's temple. God saved his people, a a tiny nation that had been swallowed up by the Babylonian and Persian empires. God had seen his people cry out to him and brought them back to the land. And when they feared the opposition of Tobiah and Sanballat, This came to nothing. Their mockery. If a fox goes up on the wall, he'll break it down. That came to nothing. The walls were rebuilt and they did stand. 
Their complaints to, to the king came to nothing. The people were allowed to stay in the land. God acted. And ultimately, the point of the psalm is that it's written for the people of God to take on our lips, for us to sing today. Though our situation might not be exactly the same, few of us will be literally surrounded by nations, being attacked like a swarm of bees, those who seek to destroy us with the speed and fury of a wildfire. But this is how the Christian life seems at times. This is how Martin Luther could take these words on his lips in his different situation. And this is a psalm, especially as people are encouraged to sing along with, as we heard in our first point, this is a psalm that we're invited to make personal for us. Because this is something that, similarly to the love of God, has become cliche and passe to us. It isn't real to us. Not really real. The idea that God has saved me. We read, we sing, we pray about God saving us. We know that Jesus died on the cross to save his people from their sins. And we think of this in a communal way. Jesus loves his church. Jesus saved his people. And so we can sort of feel lost in the crowd. We can feel unseen by God. God saved us and loved us as a group. God saved all of us. And yes, he he did, he does, but also God saved each one of us. God loves each one of us. You aren't loved because you're in the church. You're in the church because you're loved. Let me say that again. You aren't loved because you're in the church, that that you're one of the crowd. But rather, you're in the church because you're loved. Do you believe this? The psalmist wants all those who sing with him to make this personal. And so let me make this personal for you. What, what is your story of God's salvation? What is your testimony? If you've never written a testimony, then that's your homework this week. Write down what God has done for you, how he has acted in your life. Because we have to be aware of how God has worked in our lives individually. It is our past experiences with God that can give us hope and trust in his promises today. Because when you say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. It's your own personal salvation story that will make it real for you. Instead of saying these words despite your life of difficulty, trying to force yourself to believe that they're true, instead, you'll say these words because of your life of salvation, joyfully appropriating this for yourself. Where we are allowed to use the psalmist's words to describe our own situation. The psalmist himself does this. Verse 14, verse 14 of Psalm 118 is a direct quotation from the song of Moses and Miriam. The psalmist, he quotes something that happened hundreds or thousands of years before. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Those words were, writ- were originally written about the people of Israel leaving Egypt. That's not what's happening in this particular psalm, but the psalmist uses it. And so we can too. Because the Lord's salvation, just like his mercies, God's salvation is new. It is refreshed every day. It's that same mercy, it's that same love. It's eternal, but it's new. It's refreshed and applied to each and every one of us in every situation in which we find ourselves. 
And so that's why what was true for Moses and Miriam and the Israelites, the Lord saving them from the hands of Pharaoh and his armies, was true for David, the Lord saving him from the hands of Goliath, was true for the exiles, the Lord saving them from the Babylonian and Persian empires. It was true for the early church, the Lord saving them from the Romans. It was true for Martin Luther, the Lord saving him from the hands of a wicked and corrupt church. It's true for us, but more specifically, it's true for you individually today. When you're distressed, remember the Lord has answered you and will answer you again. When you're attacked by wicked men, and friends and allies can't be found, remember that God loves you. God loves you. I really mean it. God loves you. And it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in any human helper, be he king or pope or emperor. When you feel as though you are falling, remember that the full power of God, the full power of his right hand, will be used in your salvation. When you feel as though you have one foot in the grave and you can't go on anymore, remember that you shall not die, but you shall live. And you shall recount the great deeds of the Lord. And in your salvation, your your personal salvation from those who would seek to do you harm, remember above all the ultimate salvation, one for all of us, the salvation accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's our final point. If you still have your Bibles open, you can see not only thematically, but also physically, literally, right there in the text, there's a break in the psalm between verses 18 and 19. I tried to demonstrate that with with a pause as I read our text. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. Pause. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And this, it clearly begins a new section in the psalm. And when you see that in your Bibles, when, when you see that gap there shown in the text, when, when there's a clear change in theme, we always must ask ourselves what's happening. We must read Scripture in an in-depth way, asking questions when we don't understand, mining Scripture for all that it's worth. And so why this change? What is this shift doing here? Well, this is a, a change from the what to the what now. It wasn't enough for the psalmist to praise on his own. He had to involve all of the people, Israel, the priests, and the God-fearers. But it wasn't enough for them simply to hear about God's mighty salvation. It wasn't enough for them to repeat what we all need to hear. God loves you, and his love lasts forever. But there was a third step to this praise. A third step to recognizing what God has done. And it's that of public official worship going up to the temple, celebrating the feasts that God had ordained. I see a conversation, as it were, between the worshipers and the gatekeepers. The worshipers, they want to enter. And so they request, they they call up to the men on the gate, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Essentially, may I enter the temple, or at least come up to the altar, and give official thanks and worship with my sacrifices. And the gatekeeper responds, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. Essentially saying, yes, come in, all of you who are righteous, this is where you're meant to be at a time like this. It's exactly what we see in our reading too. In Ezra 3, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths. 
You see, fear was on the exiles because of the peoples of the land, and yet they worshipped the Lord. They worshipped properly at God's altar, entering through the gate of righteousness. And they even celebrated the Feast of Booths, where some scholars say it explains the rather strange description of binding the festal sacrifice onto the horns of the altar. That's something that they would do in the Feast of Booths. And this, beloved, is the proper response to salvation, to our individual personal salvations that God continues to work out in our lives, protecting us from those who would seek to do us harm. But it also points very clearly to our ultimate salvation, to the universal salvation of every tribe and tongue and nation accomplished by Jesus Christ. For when we read the verses 21 through 24, that salvation that wouldn't be accomplished for hundreds of years after the psalm was written is stated so clearly. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Not only is God the one who accomplishes salvation, but God himself is the one who is salvation. This is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His very name means Yahweh is salvation. It was through not only his mighty right hand working valiantly, but truly the entire body of our Lord, brutalized, tortured, and bled for our sins, that our ultimate salvation was accomplished once and for all. And that we will remember in the Lord's Supper at the second service. And the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, the the foundation and the capstone of our salvation. Our Savior, rejected by man, but accepted and glorified by God. Rejected and despised a man of sorrows. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This This is a description of who he was, and it contains within it a warning to us. Most important question to us, what will you do with Jesus? This is the most important question that any of us will ever answer. What will you do with Jesus? Will will you believe the truth that he loves you? I'll repeat it as many times as is necessary until it sinks in for you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Do you believe it yet? He loves you personally and eternally, long after the stars burn out and this world crumbles to dust. And how far? How far did he go to show you that love? To accomplish your salvation? There was no limit to what he would do for you. No limit to what he did do for you. As the hymn goes, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. That means is that Satan was trying to figure out just how far God would go to save us. To see if there was a limit to that love I'll go this far, but no farther. Will, will he actually take on human flesh? Yes. Okay, but would, will he be willing to be rejected and despised? Yes. What about being tortured? Yes. Would he be willing to be, to be rejected by his father, the one with whom he had eternal fellowship? Yes. Would the God of life be willing to die? Yes. There was no end to what God would do. No mountain too high, no task too difficult to deliver you from sin and Satan, to deliver you the message of his love. 
He loves you. Do you recognize this? He loves you. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So joyful were the exiles in Ezra's day that once more they could offer sacrifices and celebrate feasts. It was as though God had created this as a special, unique day for this purpose. It was as though the sun rose on this particular day for this reason and this reason only. For the Israelites in Ezra's day, it was worship at the temple after 70 long years. And then, when the sun rose on that first resurrection Sunday, the sun rose in the sky as the sun rose in the tomb. It was as though this was a brand new day created for this very purpose. This is the day that the Lord has made. Not in the normal sense of every 24 hours, the earth has revolved to the point where we see light. The sun appears to rise in the east, all part of God's plan, but this is God stepping in and doing something different, doing something unique. That brings us to today. How do we understand this verse? How do we apply this verse? Is it about Sunday worship? In a sense, it can be. We worship on Sundays because our Lord rose from the dead on a Sunday. We gather here with the people of God, rejoicing and being glad as we look back on that day. We can also look back to the day of our conversion, the day when love broke through and we accepted the truth that we're eternally loved, the day that Satan's grip on our heart and soul was broken and we became glad slaves of God instead. Or as Charles Spurgeon once said about this verse, he said this is not only about the Sabbath, not only about the Lord's Day, but about the entire Gospel Day. What he meant by that is that we're living in the end times, the time between Jesus' first and second coming, the time between the cross and the culmination. Each and every day after the day that changed everything is the Gospel Day. And so this is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day of salvation. This is the day that we have the opportunity to realize and truly accept that we are the beloved of God. Accept that he loves, loves, loves you. What better reason could there be to rejoice and praise all of our days? Amen.